0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The midterm U.S. elections have many environmental advocates breathing a sigh of relief.
1: We stood here two years ago and there weren't a lot of smiles. There are a lot more smiles on our faces today. I think as folks know, we've witnessed the last two years of the most anti-environmental president in history, and we've seen the most anti-environmental Congress in history. And the good news is, yesterday the voters said, Enough is enough. We need to go in a new direction.
0: That will include oversight by House Democrats of the Trump administration's actions at EPA, Interior, and beyond, as well as a push for progress.
2: We fully expect the House to enact a series of measures on climate change, on climate action, on clean energy, holding polluters accountable, and then put the pressure on the Senate to do the same thing.
0: We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The 2018 elections are mostly in the history books. And to sort out what happened and what might happen going forward, uh, we're going to talk now to Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News, ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. The Democrats now have one branch of the Congress— It's kind of like before, uh, President Trump was like a car with no brakes. Now at least there's going to be some constraints on it.
3: Right, with the Supreme Court writing in the back seat. But uh, with the House of Representatives uh, back in Democratic control, there's going to be at least some moderation of what the Trump administration had in mind for the environment. You know, one common thread in nearly all of the races and everything that we saw on Election Day is that environment and climate change were not considered to be important themes, but one exception is the American Petroleum Institute. They were all over the place with ads extolling the virtues of oil and gas, Uh, particularly one ad featuring the old Frank Sinatra song, Come Fly With Me, Please Don't Make Me Sing It.
0: (laughs) No, we won't. Of course, where the environment was most clearly on the ballot was in the States. Let's talk about some of the initiatives that happened. Washington State, some folks there wanted a tax on carbon, and it didn't go so well.
3: That's right. It was defeated by an absolute avalanche of uh, fossil fuel industry money. Uh, there were a few others that had differing outcomes as well. Two identical initiatives, uh, almost identical, in the states of Arizona and Nevada. And in Arizona, uh, there was also an avalanche of money put on both sides, uh, mostly from Tom Steyer, the billionaire uh, activist, environmentalist, who was responsible for most of the $23 million spent on a state initiative in Arizona to pass a clean energy measure uh, that would require the state utilities to be 50% clean energy by the year 2030. Uh, with all that money, it lost. And one of the reasons it lost is that the utilities spent even more, about $30 million. However, in the state of Nevada, A Very similar measure, 50% clean energy by 2030, passed, and money was not quite so big a factor.
0: And there were a couple of drilling measures, huh?
3: Right. uh, Florida passed a measure that would ban offshore drilling in state waters. Uh, There was one that failed in the state of Colorado, where voters there rejected a measure that would have restricted oil and gas drilling on state-owned land.
0: All right, now let's take a look at some of the people who are coming into Congress and some who are leaving. Um, Marsha Blackburn. Marsha is a congresswoman
3: from the state of Tennessee, Tea Party darling. She won election as a U.S. senator replacing Bob Corker, a Republican who's retiring. She's best known in environmental circles from back in 2012 when she led an effort against uh, energy-efficient light bulbs on behalf of an incandescent light bulb manufacturer in her district. Her environmental performance as a member of the House of Representatives was pretty low. If she recycled a couple sheets of paper in her office in the Senate, it would be an
0: improvement. Now, another Tea Party hero was Congressman Dave Bratt. Uh, Tell me his story.
3: Well, Dave Bratt became a phenomenon four years ago. He was a conservative college professor who challenged Eric Cantor in the primary for a congressional district in uh, suburban Richmond, Virginia, Cantor was a rising star among Republicans. Uh, he was House Majority Leader, tabbed as a potential future Speaker of the House. And all of a sudden, Dave Brat comes along out of nowhere, beats him in the primary, wins the general election, serves four years, compiled a lifetime League of Conservation voter score of 1%. Uh, he was defeated this past week by a Democrat, also an unheard of in politics, named Abigail Spanberger.
0: One of more than 100 women now who have entered the House thanks to the Democratic surge. Uh, talk to me about some more of the Republicans that will be gone now. What about Dana Rohrbacher? He's been in Congress for a long time. Uh, he's been there forever, 30 years in Congress uh, representing Orange County.
3: Um, he's, uh, get this, an avid surfer and an avid opponent of the Clean Water Act uh, and other measures to protect the ocean. One would think a surfer would kind of like those things. He was also an avid opponent to climate science. He was uh, second in command on the House Science Committee. He lost his race to a moderate Democratic businessman named Harley Rauta.
0: Now, there was another Republican who lost, uh, who many thought was pretty friendly to the environment. That's Carlos Curbello, a Republican from South Florida who started and co-chaired the Climate Solutions Caucus.
3: Yeah, friendly to the environment when compared to other Republicans and the growing void between um, Democrats and Republicans on environment. Curbelo represented the farthest south district in the state of Florida, including the Florida Keys, a little bit of the Gulf Coast and the southern suburbs of Miami, meaning his entire district, according to sea level rise projections, is going to be underwater sometime in the next century. Uh, We talk a lot about redistricting and gerrymandering and moving districts around for political reasons. They've got nothing on Mother Nature. Once Mother Nature gets uh, set on redistricting South Florida, there may not be any South Florida anymore, hence Curbelo a Republican talking about climate change. The Climate Solutions Caucus in Congress had a lot of skepticism from the environmental community that they were out to accomplish anything. Well, Corbello lost his job on Tuesday to an up-and-coming Democrat named Debbie mucarsel Powell, and
0: there'll be a new look in South Florida as a result. And, of course, another woman in Congress. Now, in the past, the Republicans had a number of folks who really focused on science. I'm thinking of Sherry Bollard. Uh, He's gone. But I guess a Democrat, uh, a scientist, uh, was elected that people are uh, kind of bullish about who care about environmental change. His name is uh, Sean Caston. Tell me about him. Uh, Yeah, Sean Caston is somebody that
3: uh, not only has environmentalists uh, excited, but scientists as well. There's been a push for the past year or so to get scientists more involved in politics and to have some actually run for office. Sean Kasten ran for Congress and won. He has uh, postgraduate degrees in molecular biology and in engineering. Uh, He's also a successful entrepreneur in clean energy. He took on a six-term congressman named Peter Roskam, in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, Roskam had already been under environmental criticism for ignoring pollution from a local factory. Uh, Kasten came in with a new voice in suburbs ready for a change and expect him to be a big, loud, well-educated role model of a successful clean energy
0: entrepreneur in the House
3: of Representatives.
0: And you have a few more goodbyes for us, the folks we won't see as the new Congress moves forward?
3: Well, let's uh, cue the aloha music for Lamar Smith, the veteran Texas congressman, recently the chair of the House Science Committee, who used that committee as sort of a chamber of inquisition for climate scientists, and his pal from Texas, Smoky Joe Barton, who got that nickname from environmentalists uh, because he was a close friend of all manner of polluter Uh, His claim to fame back in 2010 was demanding that President Obama apologize to BP for being so mean to them over the Gulf
0: oil spill. And uh, who else do you have in mind?
3: We got a governor, uh, Paul LePage of the state of Maine. His most famous uh, moment was when he dismissed uh, risks of uh, BPA, the potential endocrine disruptor, by saying the worst case would be that some women would get little beards.
0: And, uh, and Governor LePage is being replaced by a woman, Janet Mills.
3: Right. And one more is Daryl Issa, the Southern California congressman who's retiring. He pushed to investigate climate scientists. Uh, and on his retirement, he was replaced by another clean energy zealot on the Democratic side. So there
0: was a lot of negative advertising in this campaign, but uh, not so many on the environment, huh? Uh,
3: Carlos Curbelo is the only one I know of who ran... Uh, negative ads on the environment. Uh, The woman that beat him, Debbie Mucarsal Powell, was said to have taken coal money tied to Tom Steyer, believe it or not. Uh, Other than that, here in Georgia, for example, we were absolutely buried with attack ads uh, about the governor's race. We'll know that environmental issues have hit the political big time when politicians routinely use these ads to pollute the environmental discussion.
0: You know, Peter, once upon a time, The environment was a bipartisan issue, and Republicans did things like start the EPA. When do you think we'll get back to that?
3: You can go back further than that to Teddy Roosevelt
0: and all of his conservation
3: values. Uh, It's hard to say when we'll get back to that or if we'll get back to that. All we know is that we're not there now, and it's going to be a long road ahead. And if the two parties want to define themselves on differing environmental values, we'll be headed in the wrong direction again.
0: Indeed. Seems to me that is just one planet, not a Democratic one or a Republican one, huh? Peter Dyksters with Environmental Health News, sehn.org and deadlyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on the election at our website, LOE.org. The day after the recent election, some leaders of national environmental organizations invited in the Washington press to hail the end of one-party rule in America, at least for the next two years or so. Big environmental NGOs spent record amounts on the 2018 midterms, with the League of Conservation Voters alone spending more than $80 million. LCV President Gene Karpinski.
1: We stood here two years ago and there weren't a lot of smiles. There are a lot more smiles on our faces today. I think as folks know, we've witnessed the last two years of the most anti-environmental president in history. And we've seen the most anti-environmental Congress in history. And the good news is, yesterday the voters said, enough is enough. We need to go in a new direction.
0: And part of that new direction includes working with the new Democratic majority in the House to hold the Trump administration accountable.
1: First of all, um, we need intensive oversight. We've seen the Trump administration uh, try to repeal the Clean Power Plan. But try to appeal the clean cars rules. Corruption at Interior. Corruption at EPA. So you need intense oversight of the of the executive actions at
2: EPA and Interior and other places.
0: Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, took the microphone to push for progress as well.
2: We fully expect the House to enact a series of measures on climate change, on climate action, on clean energy, holding polluters accountable, and then put the pressure on the Senate to do the same thing.
0: Infrastructure could become a point of bipartisan cooperation. Again, the LCV's Gene Karpinski.
2: We've heard a lot of
1: conversation about an infrastructure bill. A smart infrastructure bill actually creates new jobs, new clean energy jobs that protect the planet uh, and create a much more sustainable society.
0: Environmental philanthropist Tom Steyer of NextGen America struck a cautionary note.
3: We're in a place at the federal level where we have an ability now to be represented in one of the branches of
4: government, Would have no ability to pass legislation.
0: And he said the lack of progress could be deadly.
4: The U.N. described not solving the climate problem by 2030 as causing unimaginable suffering. In terms of actually
3: solving the problem, it's not give it the good college try by 2030. It's succeed by 2030. We're very far from doing that, and in fact, uh, it is unclear to me that we can summon that will without having substantial
4: political victories across the board.
0: Democrats not only won control of the lower house of Congress, but as Gene Karpinski noted, they also gained majorities in several state houses and won more governorships, boosting the movement to cleaner energy to fight climate disruption.
1: Eight governors, new governors signed a 100% clean energy pledge. So a lot of progress will
2: continue to happen in the state.
0: Again, Michael Brune.
2: We know that governors, are the ones who make decisions on how Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act and other environmental safeguards that are promulgated by EPA. Governors make decisions on how those regulations are enforced. Does a coal plant stay online or does it move to, is it replaced with clean energy? Governors have a tremendous voice in that uh, question. Do we invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure or do we transition to clean energy? Governors have a big voice in that? Are we regulating the oil and gas and coal industries? Governors play a big role in that as well.
0: The Environmental Voter Project has studies that show of 20 million or so registered voters in the U.S. that have the environment in their top two criteria for voting, only about 20% known as super environmentalists actually voted in the 2014 midterm elections. In contrast, 35% of the General electorate turned out. The 2018 data is not yet available, but as Wendy Wendland of Environment America noted, without more turnout, politicians can continue to discount the environmental movement.
5: We didn't win everywhere. We know that. And I think that's on us as the environmental community to figure out how to connect the concern
6: that we know exists among environmental voters with the ballot box. There was some progress made on that in this election cycle, but we need to do more And we're ready
5: for that challenge as we go into 2020.
0: One of the many things environmental groups are hoping for with the Democratic House is more oversight of alleged corruption in the Trump administration. And on that list is the Interior Department Secretary, Ryan Zinke. Mr. Zinke is now subject to more than a dozen different investigations concerning his actions as head of interior. Bobby McEnany of the Natural Resources Defense Council says the allegations run from relatively minor to deeply troubling.
4: There have been issues of him forcing employees to walk his dog. Uh, he took a personal trip to Greece and Turkey with his wife, and there's a security detail that was afforded to him, which taxpayers end up paying for. There was a boat trip to the Channel Islands where he took political donors along with him and didn't inform the Department of Interior that there were associations with his political backers.
0: The NRDC's McEnany worries that Secretary Zinke is serving at the behest of industry groups he's supposed to regulate and not the American people.
4: What we see with Ryan Zinke... And this administration is an effort to suit the oil and gas and other uh, industry developers. He has said directly to oil and gas developers at conferences, I serve you. I am here for you.
0: The Trump administration recently reduced two national monuments in Utah. Secretary Zinke is being investigated for his role in that decision, which also happens to be a boon for one of his political allies, a uranium mining company. And then there's the Arctic.
4: We've seen a rush to open up oil and gas resources uh, in Alaska, And and there are a number of oil and gas lobbyists who used to work on that issue who now basically make the decision at the Department of Interior on whether oil and gas is developed in Alaska or in other parts.
0: While Secretary Zinke has his ethical troubles, there have been positive reactions to his announcement in October of offshore wind initiatives. He laid out the next steps in auctioning offshore wind leases in Massachusetts and California, as well as a review of the proposed offshore wind project off the coast of Rhode Island. Secretary Zinke declared that harnessing this renewable resource is a big part of the Trump administration's Made in America energy strategy. Here to talk more about the announcement is Joe Rome, a former deputy assistant energy secretary in the Clinton administration and founder of climateprogress.org. Joe, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on. Folks were a little surprised to see that uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke wants to start leasing space for offshore wind. In fact, has set a date, December 13th, for off of Massachusetts. What's going on with the Department of Interior and, and its offshore wind
7: projects? Well, certainly it's a surprise in the sense that, you know, the Trump administration has been pretty anti-renewable energy and and pro-coal and dirty energy. But you know, Zinke is from Montana and they have a lot of wind power up there. And he seems to understand that wind power is the fastest growing form of clean energy in this country and around the world. So he is supporting offshore wind, uh, giving out leases in, uh, off of Massachusetts and off of the state of California. So Secretary Zinke announced actual leasing dates
0: off of Massachusetts. There have been big fights in Massachusetts about offshore wind power. Why does the Secretary of Interior think that there won't be pushback from the public about these?
7: In the case of Massachusetts, I think these leases are in a different area than the Cape Wind Project. And I think the technology has improved greatly so that many of the concerns about offshore wind are decreasing. And at the same time, the economic benefit of it has been increasing because the costs have just been dropping
0: Now, I understand that California is in the process of working with the Department of Interior to develop a leasing plan offshore in California, but that requires changes in technologies, uh, if I understand it. Talk to me about what California might be able to do.
7: Sure. Well, you know, the difference between the East Coast United States, where the continental shelf slopes gradually, and California where the continental shelf drops off very sharply so that if you want to place wind off the shore of California, it's going to be deep water, which means it won't be connected to the bottom. So this has got to be a floating turbine and, and floating turbines have been more challenging. But in the last couple of years, we have seen, you know, just tremendous advances in offshore wind. And, and the beauty of offshore wind is that. If you've lived near the coast, you know the breeze is a lot steadier. And the turbines are bigger and higher up in the air where uh, than they used to be. So we're also getting steadier wind here. And so literally the wind is available as much as you get from a typical natural gas power plant. So the technology has gotten better and the ability to operate in deep water is really opening up the possibilities of offshore wind off not just the coast of the United States, but around the world. So
0: seeing the Trump administration move to uh, leasing offshore wind energy, renewable energy, to what extent do you see this as significant progress or would some see this as, as a token nod from Secretary Zinke?
7: It's clearly just a drop in the ocean, as it were, compared to the much larger attack on clean energy and clean power that the administration has launched. Clearly, the administration has said it's going to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. So that global effort to reduce carbon pollution and move off of fossil fuels, that's a setback. At the same time, you know, the Trump administration is working to roll back Barack Obama's Clean Power Plan, which would help, again, reduce carbon pollution, reduce the use of dirty fossil fuels. So whether you look at the Department of Energy or the EPA or what President Trump is doing, by and large, it is, it is a very disaster for those who want clean air and clean water for their children and a livable climate.
0: Talk to me about what these proposed projects would do. The Massachusetts bidding, how big is it? How many homes might it power? What California is looking at for offshore wind in this uh, Trump administration plan. How much uh, power would we get from that?
7: I don't want to make it look like the process is far along. We're now at the stage where people are putting out leases to bid and how many people are going to bid and how the projects go along ultimately yes we're talking about projects that could power hundreds of thousands if not millions of homes there's no question about it that the opportunity is large but it's worth noting as you said the one wind project off of Massachusetts has you know taken many years to get through all of the requirements we only have i think one offshore wind project now that's going forward so you know i think There's every reason to be very positive about the direction here, but the fact is the United States has been very slow.
0: By the way, to what extent would offshore wind be an employment program for American companies and workers?
7: Well, there's no question that, you know, this is a a big job creator. You know, when you look at traditional power plants, most of the jobs are in the building of the power plant, whereas in the case of wind, you're actually rather than building a power plant and just sticking fuel in it you're actually manufacturing these wind turbines so you get you generate really you know high paying jobs and then you need the maintenance jobs and so you know one of the very fastest growing jobs in the entire United States is wind power technicians
0: so I want to change subjects for just a moment here we read in the Washington Post recently that there's been a 14 year long oil seep in the Gulf of Mexico. What can you tell us about that?
7: Well, you know, I think people often, when they think of oil spills, they think of these massive, very visible things, the Exxon Valdez, a big oil tanker running aground, or what happened with the BP oil spill, you know, a big explosion at an offshore platform. But there are places that have been just slowly leaking for a long time. And, And in this particular case, it's kind of been kept quiet. And people didn't realize that the individual daily rate of this leak is nothing compared to the daily rate of, you know, like the BP oil spill. But, you know, it's been going on for over a decade. And it really underscores the need for oversight and investigation, which we haven't been getting. I mean, and and to be honest, the Department of Interior has actually, under, under Zinke, has been rolling back safety regulations that were put in place after the BP oil spill. The EPA has been gutting its enforcement division and letting people go and refusing to fill spots. So, you know, we're in a situation where there is very little oversight and people can be fairly brazen about it.
0: There's a lot of skepticism about the Trump administration and concern that this move into wind power there must be some catch. What do you respond to the skeptics?
7: Well, I think people should clearly be skeptical of the Trump administration in general. Um, if we were, had an administration that really cared about human health and welfare, then the focus would be on clean energy. And in this administration, it's just completely an afterthought. So I certainly want to praise Zinke for, you know, the positive effort towards offshore wind. But like I said, it's really a drop in the ocean compared to the disastrous policies across the board in the Trump administration.
0: Joe Rome is founder and editor of climateprogress.org. His new book is called Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me. We head to Montana, Ryan Zinke's home state, for a look at some of the effects of climate change expected by 2030 for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion Magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to submit essays to the magazine's website and put their homes on the map, and we give them a voice. The special place that inspires
8: essay writers doesn't have to be breathtaking or awe-inspiring, but today it is. My name is Bjorn Beer, and this is my essay on Glacier National Park. Last summer, I stood with my wife on the edge of a sheer cliff in Glacier National Park. We stared down towards the massive Grinnell Glacier. In that moment, we decided to move to Montana. I can work anywhere with internet, and my wife had multiple job offers at hospitals across the country. We could have picked anywhere but we decided to make this remote region our home, the center of our universe. As a writer, I'm surprised that I can't find the exact words to explain why we chose to live in the Flathead Valley. Perhaps it's the fact we'll be on the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi, a definite advantage as the west becomes hotter and drier. Or maybe the proximity to the raw, jagged beauty of Glacier Park lifts my soul. Perhaps we were just drawn to the great skiing, hoping our daughter can experience this privileged pastime as the autumn lingers longer and spring accelerates bit by bit, year by year. I can't tell you one rational reason why we chose Montana, so perhaps the rationale lies deeper, in emotion, in loss. By the year 2030, all of these glaciers will be gone. Blackfoot, Jackson, Sperry, Swift Current, Grinnell, and dozens more their stately names will disappear as they melt and flow into the sea. Perhaps there's some guilt here, like the way we might not see a relative for years, but once she is on her deathbed, we feel compelled to visit, to commune, to see her before she loses her earthly form. I want to be there as they melt. I want to hike back to Grinnell Glacier with my then teenage daughter in the year 2030 as the last sliver of ice sublimates into human memory. I will want to say, I'm sorry. I will want to say, we tried. We were here last summer on an interview that my wife had here at the hospital. Uh, she was looking for jobs around the country, and uh, we went up into the park on a very epic hike called the Highline Trail that starts off at a high pass. And we ended up hiking up to this ridge that overlooked this glacier, and it was just a tremendous experience. Climbing up this scree field, just a bunch of small stones that are a little bit hard to get footing on, steep, steep trail up, climb and climb for about 45 minutes, and uh, the view that surprises you on the other side, you're not expecting it, but you can see Grinnell Glacier a couple thousand feet below you, and it just takes your breath away. Uh, It's this glacier that's calving off into Grinnell Lake. The water is this very bright, bright blue. It's just this uh, amazing turquoise that provides this uh, very stark contrast against the white glacier. Uh, And then these very dark cliffs, blue sky that uh, of course, uh, we're in big sky country, so you can see pretty far. What I love about wilderness like this is it's so humbling and Glacier Park in particular is exceptionally humbling because you have these very large animals that can potentially eat you. And uh, the weather is incredibly extreme up here, so you have to be prepared for anything. Even a day hike, you have to be prepared. We tried to hike up to the same overlook uh, a couple weeks ago with our daughter. She's uh, three and a half, and she was riding on my back. And uh, on the way to this hike, we couldn't actually summit because of a a lightning storm. So we turned back around and, and stayed at a chalet that night. And the next day we said, let's go up and show our daughter the Grinnell Glacier Overlook. And there was a grizzly sow and its cub that were on the trailhead up to this, this overlook. So we ended up having to walk out with the ranger to avoid the grizzly. It's hard to wrap your mind around when you're standing next to or above this glacier that in just a few decades, it might be gone in the blink of an eye. Back in the 1800s, there were about 150 active glaciers, and today it's down to 25. Some people are saying that by the year 2030, all of these glaciers will be gone. At this northern latitude and with the glaciers, we're seeing the effects of climate change happen much faster in this part of the world. You do feel like you're almost a canary in a coal mine living here. What we're gonna do here, Freya, is we're gonna record your beautiful song so that I can learn to sing it.
5: Okay. Oh, the earth is good to me.
3: And so I thank the earth for giving me the things I need. The sun and the rain and the apples. The earth is good to me.
0: That's Bjorn Beer's three-year-old daughter, Freya, and his essay on Grinnell Glacier. There are pictures at our website, LOE.org, and there you'll also find details about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay if you want to tell us about the place where you live. Coming up, learning how to be a good creature. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
6: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Author and longtime friend of Living on Earth, Cy Montgomery, has a new book, and it's a New York Times bestseller. In her memoir, How to Be a Good Creature, Cy tells us exactly that. And who knows better than Cy how animals can teach us how to be good inhabitants of the world? From tarantulas in French Guinea to reclusive aquarium-dwelling octopuses to the dogs and chickens in her own backyard, Cy has connected with creatures all over the globe. They are her friends, her family, and especially her teachers. Joining us now from her home in Hancock, New Hampshire, is author Cy Montgomery. Now, this book is a memoir that really talks about some 13 different creatures that have taught you how to be a good creature. And you start your stories with Molly, the dog.
5: I'm looking at her picture right now on my desk. Yeah, Molly, um, Molly was essentially the older sister I never had. I mean, most little girls idolize their older sisters. I never had any siblings, but I had something better. I had a Scottish terrier. And even though she was chronologically younger than I was, I was very aware that dogs mature earlier than we do. They become adult in just a few years. We take, you know, 15, 18, 21 years to mature. But Molly was a fierce, strong, independent, wonderful, wise adult individual. And I wanted to be just like her. Ah,
0: your dog taught you to grow up to be a strong woman.
5: Yes, she did she totally did. And I used to dream of the day that I could run away with Molly and live in a hollow tree or live in the woods somewhere, that with her, I'd be able to learn the secrets of the animals who lived in the wild. And that's what I went on to do.
0: Now, in your book, you recount your career, and it seems like you're well on your way to being the journalist. I mean, little girl had a newspaper, and grown-up woman has Job as a reporter, and uh, you're all set to go. And then, well, something happens along the way.
5: Well, my father, ever my champion, gave me the gift of a trip to Australia. And I didn't want to just go as a tourist. I wondered if there was some way that I could volunteer or do a study or, you know, help a scientist. And there was. There's an organization, as you know well, called Earthwatch. You can spend a couple of weeks. Helping a scientist almost anywhere in the world. So I looked to see what they had in Australia. And what they had in Australia was a project called Drought Refugia. And this was a study with Dr. Pamela Parker of the Southern hairy nosed wombat. Now, who can resist that? Almost nothing was really known about them until Dr. Parker came along. So for a couple of weeks, we lived in tents in the outback. And by day, We would try to find the wombats. And I was crazy about this. I had the best time and I worked really hard. And afterwards, Dr. Parker was impressed enough to say, Hi, I wish I could hire you to to work for me. I, I wish I could buy you a ticket to come back to Australia, but I can't. But what I can do is if you ever wanted to come back on your own, I'd let you stay at my camp and you could eat my food. So, I went back to my wonderful job and I quit that job and moved to a tent in the Outback and I studied emus.
0: And um, you write that the emus really taught you something important. What was that?
5: They showed me a lot. I mean, I certainly learned a lot of field work knowledge from them. But the most important thing, Steve, it was that doing the science, doing the reading, all that intellectual stuff really matters. But if you want to understand an animal, you also have to bring to that understanding your heart. I let them choose to be around me, and I wouldn't approach them so closely that they would feel frightened. The minute that they seemed upset, I'd just back off and stay still. You know, at at first, I thought, I'm gathering important scientific data. This is really fun and the data is important, and taking notes is important. But the more I followed, the more I was with them. I found myself falling in love with them. And there were times that I realized that taking the notes wasn't the most important thing I was doing. Maybe the most important thing I was doing was falling in love.
0: Indeed. Now, uh, you, uh, you're a writer, and, uh, So there's always the editing process. Just how difficult was it for you to whittle your stories down to just 13 animals in 10 chapters?
5: Well, I did leave out some important animals in my life, and they very much still animate my life. But the ones that I included in this memoir, it's a memoir in 13 animals, that's the subtitle, are ones that taught me very Specific lessons for my life about how I should perceive the world and how I should behave. And I chose those that best illustrated that. Some of the animals taught me how to cope with loss. Some animals taught me how to find your destiny. One animal showed me how to forgive. And Ferber showed me that there's always something wonderful lurking right around the corner that you can't possibly anticipate.
0: Talk to me about how a creature taught you to forgive.
5: Well, this was an ermine. They're the white-coated version of weasels who live in in, in the north. So this weasel, ermine, who I met, I met on Christmas morning. And every Christmas morning, I always make my hens a big bowl of delicious hot popcorn. And I was carrying it down to give to the ladies. And one of my girls was lying dead on the floor of the coop. And someone had a hold of her head. And when I pulled her away, this white head popped out from the corner with coal black eyes. It was a tiny little critter. This animal probably weighed less than a handful of coins. But so fierce. And I could not be mad at that weasel. I mean, the animal had just killed someone who I loved, and it was Christmas morning. And you'd think that would make you really angry, or that you might even hate someone who did that. But that wasn't what I experienced at all. What I experienced was the glory of this creature, the glory of its wildness and its ferocity and its determination and its courage, its braveness. And I thought about my mother. And my mother had just died, oh gosh, that very year. But throughout my childhood and growing up and even as an adult, we had had a number of disagreements. And at one point, my parents had disowned me for marrying the love of my life, Howard Mansfield. We'd had a lot of disagreements, but in the moment that I beheld that ermine, I just felt this wave of forgiveness sweep over me for my mother, and I realized that she was fierce like that weasel. She shared a lot of the characteristics of that ermine, and there was so much in, in her to admire, and I realized how much I loved her and how much I missed her.
0: Now, mm. uh, you, uh, you write about octopuses. In fact, a uh, little shout-out about us at the show when we went to, to meet one of your octopus friends at the New England Aquarium. How did you get into, well,
5: talking and being with octopuses? Well, the first octopus I met, I went in with an assignment for Orion magazine on the intelligence of octopuses, and one of the keepers opened up the tank where Athena lived. And this huge animal, I mean, her, her arm span had to have been, oh gosh, nine, 10 or more feet. She turned bright red with emotion. She slid from her lair, looking me straight in the eye with hers. And then out from the cold 47 degree water, come boiling up her arms, reaching for me with these questing suckers. So naturally, I plunged my hands and arms right into the water to greet her. And the next thing I knew, I was patting her head. And she was just as curious about me as I was about her. And I came back several times to meet her. But the thing about octopuses is they just don't live very long. And after only a few visits, I got the horrible news that she just died of old age. So the next octopus who came, they invited me back to meet her. And that's the octopus who you met, Steve, Octavia. And there's a chapter in this book about Octavia. And when when I introduced you to Octavia, only once before had we had a close interaction. So I really wasn't sure what she was going to do when she met you. But She was quite brilliant. She was interacting with you and the producer and the sound person. And while we were all petting and feeding and watching this octopus, just our senses being flooded with the sensation of of touching this beautiful animal, feeling her suckers, watching her change color, right out from under our noses. She stole a bucket of fish. Do you remember that? (laughs)
0: I know. <laughs> she
5: just... She totally outwitted us. <laughs>
0: you know, I have to confess, I was a bit fearful. I mean, I hadn't met an octopus before.
5: Right, and they're depicted as monsters in all kinds of literature and paintings and etchings. Yeah, when I reached in there,
0: first there was one sucker, and then there were several suckers and everything attached. But thanks for you being there, I simply relaxed. But when I heard that she, too, died of old age and motherhood. I was sad.
5: I know. I know. They just break your heart. But I knew her more intimately than than any other octopus because I knew her pretty much from when she first showed up at the aquarium until she died. And it was just so beautiful to be able to see the full arc of her life. And the last thing... um, Mother Octopus does is it tend for their eggs, and um even though her eggs were infertile, she tended them with all the tenderness and love that a mother octopus would feel for living eggs, and that was a real blessing to be able to see
0: now uh, you uh, I think you struggle at times with making sure to not anthropomorphize the animals in your stories, but you also make the point that perhaps the worst mistake is to assume that animals are emotionless, that they don't have emotions.
5: Exactly, exactly. What we don't want to do is project our feelings onto other animals or, or other people. And so, and, and we can't help it sometimes. You know, we, we can easily imagine that an animal wants to be petted when maybe it doesn't. That's a common mistake but more dangerous, as you said, is to think that they don't have thoughts or feelings. Thoughts and feelings are not human things alone. We're part of a huge family of living creatures. And consciousness does not belong to us alone. Emotion does not belong to us alone. These are things that are helpful to animals to let them live. So we do ourselves and the creatures A terrible disservice to assume that they are thinking nothing, that they are feeling nothing, that they know nothing, that they do not make decisions. We will never understand the lives around us unless we realize that animals are thinking, feeling, knowing beings.
0: So before you go, Sai, what do you hope to impart to animal loving listeners or even those whose relationships with animals may be a little more tenuous or even skeptical?
5: Well, I would want to say that we're embedded in this glorious world of other souls, other minds. And these others have so much to teach us. And being surrounded by teachers in a a confusing and difficult world should, should make us feel far more at home here and far more in love with our homes. And give us the courage to fight for this beautiful earth that is so imperiled and so alive.
0: Sai Montgomery's book is called How to Be a Good Creature, a memoir in 13 Animals. Sai, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
5: Oh, such a pleasure, Steve.
0: One of the many creatures that Cy Montgomery has learned from are her own backyard chickens, or the ladies, as she calls them. The humble chicken is also the subject of this week's bird note from Mary McCann.
9: Chickens are awake and ready to go well before dawn. And they start foraging at the first glimmer of morning light. They're laying eggs while you're still sipping your morning coffee. But what exactly is a free-range chicken? Next time you're at the grocery store, take a look at the labels. According to the USDA, which regulates food labeling, free-range or free-roaming chickens need only be allowed some kind of access to the outside. That could mean all-day access to a lush pasture or a tiny enclosure behind a door open for just a few minutes a day. What if the label says, humanely raised? It turns out the standards behind that labeling can also vary quite a lot. So if you wish to eat truly free-range chickens or eggs, how do you know what to look for? Chickens raised for meat or eggs that spend their days outside pecking for bugs, grubs, and fresh green vegetation are best known as pastured poultry. Look for labels that show the chicken was pasture-raised or animal welfare-approved. If you can, buy from a local farmer. Or if you have a big backyard, maybe even try raising your own chickens at home. Your decisions at the grocery store can really make a difference for local farmers and chickens alike. I'm Mary McCann.
0: For pictures, flock on over to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Thurston Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Sarah Rappaport, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. You can also find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
6: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and United Technologies, combining passion for science with engineering to create solutions designed for sustainability in aerospace, building industries, and food refrigeration. UTC companies such as Otis, Carrier, Pratt and Whitney, and UTC Aerospace Systems are helping to move the world forward. You can learn more about United Technologies by tuning into to the Race to Nine Billion podcast. Listen at race to 9billion.com. That's race to 9billion.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.